Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. These past months, I've been introducing Arabic roots on the program that correspond to Hebrew terms that tie off with New Testament Greek via the secondary text of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. It's secondary, of course, because consonantal Hebrew is primary. As Father Paul has said many times, Semitic roots, including classical Arabic roots, are critical for our hearing of scripture, but they can also be misleading. For example, in Hebrew, the term ishaq means he laughs. However, in Arabic, sahaka means to crush, to thrash, or to pound. In this case, the triliteral connection does not work and does not shed light. Still, among Semitic languages, Arabic is of special value for our hearing of Biblical Hebrew because of the unique way in which its classical grammar has been fixed from as early as the 7th century. I am not referring to modern standard Arabic, that strange Occidental label easily boiled down to an Occidental acronym, MSA ironically suitable for use by the MSM in their description of something they consider exotic and distant, but not relevant, unless they want to scare you into their latest project. I am referring to pre-classical and, more importantly, classical Arabic. The earliest and authoritative book on classical Arabic grammar is a 7th century work by the Persian scholar Amar ibn Uthman called, wait for it, The Book, Al-Kitab, a five-volume series on classical Arabic grammar. The grammarians of Basra in modern-day Iraq were among the earliest and most influential in the development of Arabic grammar. Al-Kitab is lengthy, analytical, and untranslatable in English. Like the Bible itself, it is neither modern nor standard. It is, however, canonical. Some of the Arabic terms I have introduced on the podcast this past year might not be recognized by colloquial speakers. In a few cases, that's because I have appealed to pre-classical Arabic roots that have fallen out of usage. In other examples, not every root is used everywhere or known to everyone. The funny thing about Semitic roots, as I have said repeatedly, is that they don't mean anything in the first place. These groupings of consonants only come to life when they are grouped with other consonants. They are not ontologies. There is no meaning, Habibi, only function. 
Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Boulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 513 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the things that struck me, Richard, as I was working through some of the terminology for this week's episode, is a point that Father Paul raised not just in the rise of Scripture, but specifically in decoding Genesis, which is, once again, something we've talked about, the itinerary of a word. Much emphasis has been placed on Genesis 1 through 4 and Genesis 1 through 11 as a kind of lexicon. And as you know, I've been doing lexicography. So if you're interested in lexicography and you're taking a look at how the Septuagint renders certain terms— and then considering how Luke is potentially referring to the Septuagint, and then considering the original Hebrew, Genesis would be a good place to check now and then to see potentially what the value of certain terminology might be. And so as I was making an effort to hear and submit to the passages that we'll be working on today from the Gospel of Luke, there were some things that stood out that one normally wouldn't consider if you were just reading Luke as though it were a fairy tale or poetry. And I'll give you an example to contextualize this for our hearers. I was at a Christmas concert recently, and there was lots of talk about Bethlehem of Judea, about the birth of the Messiah, peace on earth. And there were New Testament scholars and pastors present, and lots of religious pageantry. There was a broad audience and ample opportunity at this gathering to say something about the significance of these texts. They even quoted some texts from the prophets. Now, all these texts were in English, and the people who read them, and in some cases sang them, had beautiful smiles on their face. In English, Richard, it sounded like wonderful poetry, like fairy tales, dare I say, Hallmark cards. (laughs) And I'm sitting there with my elderly mother who was born in Bethlehem, literally next to Manger Square. And there wasn't even a moment of silence to acknowledge the suffering in her hometown. Now, if you hear these texts in the original languages, you can't get off that easy. Because in the original languages, especially the verses from the Old Testament, you trip over the critique and the judgment and the harshness of what is being said. You can't play games with the text, even when you extract it from the scroll. But in English, it sounds like a fairy tale which, as you'll soon hear, is what Luke sounds like if you're not dealing with the archaeology of words. When one stands up in front of a crowd, one is teaching. Always. You can be a member of Congress. You can be a university president. Whenever you're up in front of a crowd, you're teaching. 
you have to know what the lesson is when it's time to go up there. In Scripture, everyone will go to this point, which is, oh, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in that day. But there's an assumption. There's an assumption that you've been hearing and obeying this text up until that point. If you haven't been hearing and obeying this text, when it comes time to teach in front of the crowd, you won't have anything to say, or you'll speak from your own belly. Whatever you do is what you become. If you are a hearer and a doer of this text, then you become more and more a child of this text. But if you become someone who makes a profit at whatever cost, even if you're giving that money to a good cause, you're a maker of money. And when hauled in front of people, you'll talk about making money. That's the word that you've got. That's the spirit you have. Whenever you're in front of the crowd, you're teaching, but you're going to teach from the spirit that's in you. And that's really the test of what spirit is in you. When you open your mouth to speak in front of the judge and the magistrates or the Congress, what's in your heart is going to come out. And if it's just a bunch of confusion in there, then you're going to say a bunch of garbledygook and no one's going to understand what you have to say. But if you have conviction, then you speak from conviction. Now, some people can have some kind of conviction when their job is safe. But when their job is on the line and they have some kind of conviction, then they're torn. Do I say what I'm convicted of or is what I'm really convicted of, I want to keep my job? Where is your heart? It'll come out. Because the spirit that's in you will animate your actions, will animate your words. I mean, the spirit is the breath. Without spirit, there is no word, because nothing comes out. <laughs> if, you, if, your lung, if there's nothing, no air in your lungs, there's no words that's going to come out. You need that spirit. But the shape of those words, the sounds of those words, the content of those words come from the spirit. And when we come into today's reading, it's a contest between two teachings, the one in the city versus the one out in the desert we talked about last time, and now we're going to have Jesus teaching face-to-face, mano a mano, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. I sarcastically and with sarcasm pronounced the words one day because if you were just reading this to kids at church, you would say, little children, one day he was teaching as though it were once upon a time, which is how it sounds in English. But that's not what it is. It is technical terminology. Where does this come from? Where have we heard this phraseology before? Father Paul spent a lot of time explaining to us that there is no first day in Genesis. Ehad, in Hebrew, I'm referring now to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, means one. There was one day, Ehad Yom. The word Ehad in Arabic is Wahad. It's the same word, the same triliteral root. Ehad Wahad means one. It's not the first day. It is a marker. It is establishing a baseline in any analytical endeavor. If you're going to measure anything, you establish a baseline. This is one day. 
So now moving forward, if we talk about any other day, we know what one day is. It's not the first day, as you find very often in colonial translations, which have as their premise philosophical theology, which works great if you are one of Plato's philosopher tyrants, which is exactly what scripture sets out to cancel. God called the light day and the darkness. He called night, and there was one evening, and there was morning, one day, ehad yom. I'm bringing up Genesis because it defines our terminology. For someone who hears scripture and doesn't hear Hallmark cards and British fairy tales, you can't read verse 17 to the children as though once upon a time Jesus was teaching. That's my point. De facto, in the terminology, Genesis is functional here. One day, he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees, teachers of the law. These are men who should be learned, and they were sitting. Now, what hit me about this word sitting, and this gives me an opportunity to make a point that I've raised previously, this correlation between Greek terminology and Hebrew terminology is not a one-to-one correspondence. It depends on the context and which term the translators of the Hebrew in their rendering of the Septuagint deem most appropriate. In our English-speaking mind, there are Greek words that we would think are heaven and earth apart from each other, that those rendering the Septuagint Greek see connections because of their mastery of the Hebrew. So in Greek, sitting, kathime, has a more obvious connection now to the Hebrew yashab, which in Luke chapter 4 and verse 40 was linked to the Greek word therapia. But here it's directly linked to a Greek word for sitting. Now, in this case, when you look at the word kathime in Greek in the Old Testament and how it aligns to yashab, in this case, the one sitting is the one being ministered to. It's the same word in Hebrew, but it's used differently, and that's why it's linked with a different term in the Greek. Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting, Yosheb, at the tent door in the heat of the day. There's other examples, Joshua chapter 5, verse 8, or in 1 Kings chapter 23, verse 14. It's the power of the Lord that performs the healing. These are the ones who are to teach, but instead they're sitting as though they are the ones in need of the healing. Earlier, Jesus was sitting as the healer. Now you would think that they would be the ones to provide the healing because they're called to be teachers of the law, but now they have to be still because it's the power of the Lord's instruction that provides healing. So the roles are reversed. Thinking back to chapter 4, we have a different word now for healing. Iaste, which corresponds to rafa in Hebrew, rafa in Arabic, to lift, to raise, to mend, to patch, or also to abolish. Genesis twenty seventeen, Abraham prayed to God and God healed. Yirfa, Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. So you have these teachers 
who are not producing anything. And these are men that have come down from the Comis, the settlement. Why do I say settlement? Not the village of Galilee as it's translated, because Haser in Hebrew is literally a settlement, an enclosure. Hazara, something fenced or hedged in, something banned or prohibited. You draw a line around it, something that you fence off. And it's interesting that we're talking about Galilee. You are trying to fence something off. You are the people who should be opening it up. You are the teachers. Now, Jesus is coming in after one day, which is the marker in Genesis. He is coming in to do the work of his father. It's the Lord who does the work in Genesis after one day, and on the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Now, he's coming in to wield the power of his father. It's not Jesus's power. While these guys are sitting down when they should be getting up to do the work. They're sitting down because they're the ones in need of healing. And it's the power of the Father of Jesus that provides the healing through instruction. But because they're not doing their duty of teaching, settlements have been established and people have been walled off and hedged off, which is the opposite of what the instruction produces. So once again, there's a tension There's a duty to teach, a duty to scatter, a duty to open up, a duty to push out towards the wilderness, and they're trying to hedge in. Building off of what you said about one day, literally it's in one of the days, and Mia Tony Meron. We talked about this in 512 when Jesus, as it was translated, went into a certain city, but it didn't say that in Greek. It said, en mia ton which is the same expression, in one of the cities, on one of the days. Actually, your point here is critical because in Genesis, it's ke egeneto proi imera mia. In Luke, it's ke egeneto en mia ton imeron. So there is a difference in the Greek, but one at the same time can't but hear the similarity. There were a lot of days he was doing things. He was going to a lot of cities. This is the kind of thing that would happen when Jesus would go to a city. In Greek, it's making this representative idea of what's happening. Then we have this juxtaposition, aftos in didaskon. He was teaching, didaskon, the ones who were sitting down, the Pharisees and the nomodidaskali, the law teachers teachers of the law. So we have didaskon, which is what Jesus was doing, and nomodidaskali, who were the teachers of the law. We have the two teachers. We have the bank of teachers over on this side and Jesus alone on the other side, and they are working against each other. Elirithotes, which means they had arrived. Jesus comes, and these people had already arrived and were sitting as if they were waiting for Jesus to come on stage or something like this. That isn't pushing things too far because they weren't just from the area. They were from Galilee, from Judea, and even Jerusalem. So they were from a long ways away. People were coming from all over the place, but these were people with a teaching. These were not just the crowds that were amazed. 
These people came because they wanted to make a point. Then at the end of the verse, we find what I found to be very strange. The power of the Lord was for healing him. Him? Who's him? Now, scribes saw this as a problem because we can see that there are manuscripts where it doesn't say him, it says them, which is already interesting that this power of the Lord was for healing them. So it wasn't just that he was going to heal this guy who's about to come up, but he was there to heal the scribes and the Pharisees or the crowds or something like that. Although in this one, the crowds are not mentioned like it was in the last pericope. The only people mentioned so far are these Pharisees and law teachers. The power of the Lord was for healing, but for whom? So far, all we have mentioned is the scribes and the law teachers. Is he here to heal the law? No, the law is fine. No one needs to fix Torah. But the way that Torah is being taught, maybe. The Pharisees and the law teachers, why they came there and the point they wanted to make, did that need to be healed? Probably. But Luke makes it frustrating because it's him or it. Is he looking forward to this person who's about to arrive? Because, you know, on one of the days, someone shows up to get healed. In one of the cities, a bunch of people showed up to be healed. On one of the days, somebody showed up to be healed. The power of the Lord was there to heal. Is this to heal the way that they were teaching? Is it to heal it, the point that they were trying to make? Or is it trying to heal this person who's about to arrive? Luke leaves it ambiguous here for us to have to move forward and ask the question, to heal who? When I was doing the word study on Yashab, there were many examples where people were sitting and either the Lord or another character came to them. And I gave a couple examples where the Lord intervened to provide help or healing. But there's an example in Numbers 32, verse 6. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? I'm just reflecting on your discussion of agency in verse 17 here in Luke. Jesus, in effect, is going to war. At the end of the verse where it says, In is afton to iaste, the point is, at the beginning of the verse, the agency is with Jesus. He's the one wielding the power of the Father to give instruction, while the supposed teachers of the law are sitting down. So then when you consider this example from Numbers, you're going to sit down there while your brother is doing the work? Why is Jesus the only one teaching? So the ambiguity that you're highlighting in the Greek, in a way, doesn't matter because Jesus has taken agency. Jesus is wielding the instruction, and they're not. And that's why Galilee is sealed off as a settlement. So yes, the scribes and the Pharisees are in need of healing, but Jesus didn't heal them because they're condemned. And that's the challenge. And I appreciated also your point about this terminology one day, because it heightens the importance of this phrase as technical terminology. And some men were carrying on a bed 
a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. Again, it's terminology. This word trying corresponds to two terms in the consonantal Hebrew via the Septuagint. The first is bakash, which means to discover, to find, to request, to search for. And I spent some time looking at usage to see which term might be more functional here for Luke. The other term, of course, is darash, which also means to seek, to search, to investigate, even to make supplication with intent. And that corresponds in Arabic to darasa, which is where the famous madrasa comes from. You know how Americans with their heightened sensibilities on the left, the supposed left in the United States, which doesn't exist. They used to make fun of people in the Middle East when they would talk about the madrasas in Iraq and Afghanistan. That word madrasa comes from or corresponds to this Hebrew word darash, which means to search, to study. You go to school to seek knowledge. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks derosh for it then you shall restore it to him. This is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. This aligns, of course, to ziteo, which means to seek. So I opted for darash and not bakash simply because in this context we're dealing with knowledge of God's instruction. We just were contrasting Two different kinds of teachers, Jesus and the supposed teachers of the law in the previous verse. These guys are sitting down. They're not doing the work. Jesus was teaching, and now you have people that are actively seeking instruction. They are searching the text, metaphorically speaking. And we have yet another example of potentially a technical term that we might easily overlook if we weren't doing, again, the archaeology of words. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that you have a word that corresponds to seeking and searching, and it's translated as trying. They were trying to bring him in and to set, thine, tithimi. Now, you know, why not just accept this for what it is? Why not just say, well, they're just trying to set him down? Because in Hebrew, sim, to set, to arrange, put, shama in Arabic, to insert something, to she the sword, the Lord God planted or set a garden toward the east in Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And there he placed Yasem, the man, Ha'adam, whom he had formed. Now, it's interesting that they were carrying on a bed 
anthropon, ha-adam, a human being. And they're setting him down in front of Jesus for instruction. They're searching out the teacher from verse 17. It's terminology. Is Genesis functional in our ears? Maybe, maybe not. But it's useful and helpful to slow down and soak in terminology. That's the case that I'm making. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.